This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week on the podcast, we're celebrating Pride Month with popular writer and gay activist Dan Savage, author of the advice column Savage Love and creator of the Emmy-winning It Gets Better campaign. Along with fellow writer and political commentator Andrew Sullivan, Savage came to the library back in 2013 to mark the release of his latest book, American Savage. In this entertaining and thought-provoking conversation, Sullivan and Savage talk about moralism, marriage, and monogamy. Let's clap from you. I just hope the ASL people know the challenge ahead of them tonight. Uh, <laughs> it should be amusing. Um, we're here to celebrate this extraordinary book, American Savage, which is a collection. And most collections you read tend to be rather dull and formulaic. This is um, like everything Dan writes uh, amazingly well-written, vivid, funny. The man can't write a bad sentence. You all know that. And the man is incapable of anything but candor. <laughs> no I'm, upstaging. I'm just going to answer my, <laughs> my texts while you praise me, because I can't take it. We've known each other for a long time, mainly because um, we both um, were hated by the gays uh, in the 90s. And I think they still hate you, right? Yes. No, gay people like me now. It's bisexuals, transsexuals, asexuals have formed sort of a axis of hate me. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> uh, um, I wanted to start by focusing on the opening essay in this book, which is about your mother and your family. One of the things we both have in common is we both come from pretty traditional Irish Catholic families, and it's the contrast between that and gay life in all its banality and craziness at the same time that I think is the key to why your view on it is so uh, perspicacious. Tell us, tell us about your mom. Um, my mom was, um, she passed away a few years ago in the essay, is literally about her, her, her death, and she was just a really wonderful and kind and funny Irish Catholic uh, mom and housewife. Uh, she married at 20, 21, as people did then in the 60s, and right away had four children. Um, we came from so traditional an Irish Catholic family that my parents were going to get married that summer, but they had they became pregnant, and so they moved their wedding up to February and lied to everybody. Um, and then it, and then my mother had a miscarriage with, for. And so she did, they didn't have to lie. And when it came out years later that uh, my mother had been pregnant when she married, her own mother didn't speak to her for two years, um, which was awkward because we lived with my grandmother. <laughs> uh, and my mom was just very smart and funny and, and dark and Irish and full of humor. And never left the church, right? And never left the church. Um, she insisted that the church was the congregation and the people and that the hierarchy had been wrong so many times throughout history. 
uh, and the Pope had been wrong so many times throughout history, uh, that the Pope did not deserve the benefit of the doubt on things like uh, married uh, priests or the ordination of women, or after she came around on the issue of homosexuality because she had to, um, because for her, family was more important than, than dogma, um, that the church was wrong about us, about you and me, too. But you, you seem to just, as soon as you figured you were gay, you're like, this is not for me. This is not the place I belong. You didn't really spend any, didn't seem, anyway, a huge struggle for you in just quitting that tradition. And uh, It kind of fell apart. Um, for me in a way that it didn't for you. You yeah. still practice and believe. And, and, and I respect your belief and I respect your, um, your practice. And it's very moving. I read you every day, as everyone should. And it's very moving when you write about your faith and how it, it impacts your life. And in a way, and part of what that essay is about, is I'm kind of jealous of that, that I wish that I could access that still. And I, and I can't. There's this block. See, I'm sort of jealous of, of you. Uh, <laughs> if, if I could not be a Catholic, I would. <laughs> it's not compulsory. It, it, it definitely feels that way to me. And I, I, I have to say, I think that it's, 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 it's through your writing, even in your, even in your most candid sex advice columns, there is a, there's a very firm ethical Catholic. sense that you, you get. There is a right and there is a, you're not a relativist in that sense. You are actually kind of a stern moralist in some respect. I am, which if you read more than one column, I think begins to come across. Uh, I get accused of being sort of hedonist and anything goes. And if you read the columns, I'm often telling people to knock it off, that that isn't right. They shouldn't have done that. It's just that I will give permission slips that nobody else will give. That there are times I think that adultery is better than divorce. And um, there are absolutely positively times that when cheating is not just is the right thing to do for your spouse. Um, and we should embrace those ambiguities and contradictions because it will strengthen marriages. This, let, let, this, let, let, crazy, let. <laughs> this crazy, maniacal attachment that, to, that we believe that successful monogamy defines a successful marriage is destroying marriages. It's leading to unsuccessful marriages. Monogamy it, is it, a disaster for marriage. It seemed to lead to successful marriages in the sense that they stayed together longer, even though they were miserable and hated one another. Uh, but once, once marriage was no longer for life, I lo you know, the anti-gay conservatives run around saying, one man, one woman for life. Ha, 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 ha. Tell that to Newt Gingrich and tell that to Rush Limbaugh. It's one man, one woman for however long they wish to be married to each other. So if misery is built into that marriage, if sexual deprivation is built into that marriage, that is the engine that will destroy that marriage. Yeah. And so we My need to... My parents' marriage lasted 49 and a half years. And, and they, they divorced. Uh, before they could celebrate their 50th birthday. That's how fucking miserable it was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They, they, had a, they had a home they were going to, they built actually f for their later years and they asked me, because in England they, they actually name their homes rather than numbers and I suggested the bitter end. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, but and since, and here's the thing because I think in some, what you're doing I think is actually re-moralizing you're not demoralizing. You are saying that the morals that these structures have sustained are actually no longer moral. They're actually forcing people to be cruel to one another. They're forcing people to be miserable. And Particularly women to be miserable yeah. and to be enslaved. Uh, you know, when they 
to harken back to traditional marriages and more stable families. Those were lousy times to be the female in, in that setting. My mother had no, nothing but the household uh, allowance she was given each week. Uh, she had no autonomy at all. What's funny about your parents' divorce, ha ha ha, is <laughs> if your mother... Uh, I can't believe I'm talking about that, but you bring it out of me because you're so candid about your own family and your own life. If your it? mother had been... Was it your mother who divorced your dad? Yes. If she had been hit by a bus on the way to the lawyer, everyone would have gone, oh, 49 years together, they had a successful marriage. But because... Apart 40... from the children. <laughs> I'd say they're stuck there too. But 49 years and then they part, that's an unsuccessful marriage. But, and here's the amazing... Because we, we define success in marriage as death. Yes. Like, oh, we should... We should go to a funeral and congratulate the widow. Awesome job, high five, successful marriage. Doesn't matter how miserable you were. It doesn't matter whether that was fulfilling. It doesn't matter if it was an abusive relationship or one of sexual deprivation and lifelong misery and resentment and anger and abuse. If somebody's fucking getting buried and you're still married, awesome. And I don't think that's a workable definition of marriage when people have access to divorce courts and lawyers. Except your wedding ring has a skull on it. It does. <laughs> uh, which was a design picked by uh, Dan's son, DJ, yep. to signify exactly... Uh, Till death do you part. Yeah. Terry and I, that, you know, we want to live up to those ideals, some of them. <laughs> it's funny, marriage is so new to us. And Terry and I were ambivalent for a long time. Terry particularly ambivalent about marriage. Uh, for gay people my age, and, and we're the same age, we're 48 years old, um, marriage and children and family was sort of, those were the throats you slit the day you came out. Those were bodies you buried and then you walked away. And that wasn't going to be part of your life. And so circling back to that becoming a possibility for us was really strange. And we were literally going to get married. We were in the car driving up to Vancouver, Canada to get married on our 10th anniversary. And we called the officiant and said, okay, we've got this, we've got that. Is there anything else we need? She said, do you have rings? And we thought, no, no, we don't. We didn't think of that. Um, so sort of like not plugged into the marriage thing where we, we pulled off to this rock jewelry store. It's like rocker, hesher um, jewelry store, like tight pants and bad jewelry just to get temporary rings. And uh, we, DJ was at the thing and said, oh, get the skulls, get the skulls. We were like, that's morbid. He's like, till death do you part, till death do you part. <laughs> And we got them, and Terry wears his facing out because he looks rock and roll, you've seen Terry. And I have to wear mine facing in because on an airplane somebody asked me if I was a white supremacist. <laughs> and not in a confrontational, that's a bad thing to be way, it was but a in a... <laughs> in a me too way. And I was just like, I'm turning this ring the fuck around for the rest of my life. Even if it means having a big callus right there where its jaw digs into me. Um. <laughs> Pivoting I wanna, off white I want to, I want to, I, I just want to give a little end point to that story of my parents' divorce, which is that last year my sister had her 50th uh, birthday. My, my husband and I both went there. And, uh, you know, I'd never seen my mom and dad really affectionately touch one another almost my entire life. Uh, there was a sort of standoff. At that, after they had divorced, at that family occasion, my father invited my mother to dance. How beautiful. It was 
a really touching moment, and their relationship right now is healthier and more loving and more open than it's ever been. So, and they still want to be buried next to one another. And But it, it was getting out of that immoral structure into one that dealt with the substance, not the form, the substance being the actual freedom of two people. When one person has no freedom, there is no marriage. People there talk about the culture of divorce somehow cheapening marriage. Um, and in a way, couples who are unhappy together being able to leave uh, each other and, and not be compelled to stay together, nothing welded together, that tells us something about the couples who do stay together. And sometimes when a couple divorces, and this has happened in my own sort of family, like widened circles more than once, a couple will divorce and then they will remarry a couple years later. Because there's something about realizing that marriage is always opt-in, which it is now. Marriage is always opt-in. At, at any moment, you can opt out. So it's almost like you have to earn your partner's presence in your life. You have to not woo them every day, but you cannot take them for granted in the way you could when it was one woman, one man for life. You think that's a function of the homosexualization of heterosexuality, or is it a... Uh, well, I think that's a serious issue, to be honest with you. I mean, I, we were talking about this earlier, but it does seem to me, and Dan was saying, that, look, in the old days, you would, like my parents and your parents, 22, 23 years old, um, want to get laid. The only way to get laid is to get married when you have a nice Catholic girl that you want to marry. Um, and it's a mistake. It is a mistake. They don't have anything in common, blah, 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 blah. It's a, it's, 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 it's a nightmare after a while. Whereas... Gay couples, essentially, or gay people, essentially, basically screw around, have a great time, find out who they are, who they're compatible with. Everything that straight people do now in their 20s and early 30s uh, is what was condemned 30 years ago as by right-wing religious conservatives as the gay lifestyle. Yeah. You renamed everything. Gay people had tricks. You people have hookups. Gay people had fuck buddies. You people have friends with benefits. But... <laughs> The whole moving to the city, living in an urban area, having an apartment, fucking a lot of people, dating around, and then settling down in your 30s, that period of straight life, post-college, pre-marriage, the way we do it in the blue states, where it works, <laughs> is, is the gay lifestyle. That is what Jerry Falwell and Anita Bryant-era anti-gay conservatives condemned, was that hedonism and fucking around. And now that's how straight people all live. We are all faggots now in our 20s. <laughs> Let, let me push back on that a tiny bit. <laughs> the one thing that gay men have going for us, in a way, is that we're men. And therefore, there's a, an attitude towards sexuality that is, I think, essentially different than women. I think you and I are pretty in agreement on this. There's no post-structuralist can't here. Um, I, I do agree with you that gay men are men. It's not... <laughs> No, but that men are different than women. Men are different than women. Um, which is perhaps more brilliantly proven in the gay male culture compared with lesbian culture than in any other comparison. Um, but women do seem to have more of a problem with this. I mean, we, we, let's talk about monogamy or monogamish. Mm -hmm. uh, for some unfathomable reason, um, women in a relationship, a committed relationship, I'm being ironic if Tony... Tony Perkins is, is tuning in, uh, feel much more betrayed and affronted by uh, adultery, as it were, um, 
than men do. Although men, men well, no, also. The stu- studies don't bear that out really? necessarily. Um, women are more threatened by an emotional attachment involved with a, an adulterous affair than the rando blowjob on a business trip. Um, but men are more threatened by just the sexual encounter right. uh, in a committed monogamous relationship. Because men are assholes and hypocrites. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, monogamy. Monogamy is... We are not naturally monogamous. We are naturally, we are socially monogamous. We pair bond. There are a lot of socially monogamous mammals out there where there is a pair bond. You can see it uh, in the wild. But the DNA tests are in now, and now we know that we do not have to live like herons or making monkeys. Um, that these animals that appeared to be sexually and socially monogamous were just socially monogamous. They my, were my favorite with around. the swallows. Um, who knew? Who I know. <laughs> They, they were... <laughs> settle down, settle down. Uh, yeah, that was cheap. I was embarrassed for myself <laughs> right after I said that. Like, God. We call it, Terry and I call that the single entendre. Like, <laughs> gay men are terrible with the single entendres. You're at somebody's birthday party. Blow out your candles. We know you can blow. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, we got it. <laughs> It's like that, um, that <laughs> bathhouse which um, Butters' dad went to called the White Swallow Inn. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they got the details of that amazingly right, even down to that ghastly sort of disco music in, in the background. In the South Park episode where, oh. where Butters finds out his father is wrestling a black man in, a, in, a, in the White Swallow Inn. Anyway. Um, uh, monogamy. Men. Monogamy. Women. How do you actually negotiate that? How do you... I mean, I know gay couples can negotiate it in the sense that they say, look, some of them have a don't ask, don't tell thing. Some of them has a cards on table, to quote Dina. Um, some of them... Uh, some of them... Uh, have a threesome on the table. Uh, well, that, that's a difficult thing when you, talk, when you try to talk about monogamy versus non-monogamy is there's one thing that monogamy is and what non-monogamy is is really varied, and it depends on the couple and their particular agreement or understanding. What makes it moral? What makes... Because you're a moral guy. Consent makes okay, something okay. moral. And that's really... I would say that's the core ethic that, you, that underlies your sex advice. First of all, is consent and adult, and right? And do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which was sort of beaten into me by my mom and my dad and the nuns at St. Ignatius. And you just... You had to think through your choices and actions and then put the shoe on the other foot for everything and say, would I appreciate this? And then you don't do those things. Now, there's something, like I just said, cheating in some some cases is okay. It's the lesser of two evils. Um, You know, there are instances where someone is dependent on someone for their health care financially. Maybe they're physically disabled and they're with this person and they're no longer able to be sexually active and the other person is losing their mind. The culture literally tells that person to be moral, to be good. You must abandon your dependent and helpless spouse divorce and then remarry because sex outside of marriage is terrible and adultery is the worst thing you can possibly do. Whereas divorce, and I would say in that situation, better to cheat and stay. Better to do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane and be there because that's a different kind of loyalty. We shouldn't... I'm the one who's always accused of putting too much of an emphasis and importance on sex in a relationship. And yet the same people who accuse me of that then turn around and say, if, there is an, if there's an affair, if there's adultery, the marriage is over and has to end. And I look at a marriage and I say, children, family, time together, a shared history, these connections, property, 
all of that should outweigh a blowjob. We shouldn't look at a blowjob and go, yeah, yeah, that blowjob is more important. Those people who say adultery in all cases is wrong or a relationship extinction level event, they're putting more of an emphasis. They're making sex more important than it has to be over the long run, over the multi-decade course of a marriage. Do you think uh, the blowjob caucus in the back is right there with me? <laughs> Somebody's clapping and his wife is looking at him going, <laughs> reading into that clap. Would, would Not that there aren't wives who are down with uh, non-monogamy. There's a lot of monogamous couples out there who are straight. And the, you know, the, the, there's so much cultural programming that's, that's done to women, so much socialization that's done to women. They have to be the caretaker. They have to control male sexuality. They have to, you know... And a lot of women find later in life that that's not who they are or what they really wanted to do. So why are they so attached to this model? Because, because women I are socialized much differently than men are. Women are not given permission to be sexual, not given permission, uh, you know, the slut versus stud problem, not given permission you to don't have think sexual that agency and control. Having conceded that there is some difference biologically and... It's a combo platter, though, I really feel. And there's also sexual violence and sexual risk. Women are at greater risk of sexually transmitted infections in a heterosexual encounter, certainly greater risk of getting pregnant in a heterosexual encounter. And then there's intimate partner violence, like the cost for women, the barrier to entry, the hurdle is higher to, to get to yes because the risks are so much greater right. and the dangers are greater. And I think some women are, you know, women are, should be cognizant of those risks and are. And some of what the cultural programming is doing is trying to control for those risks, right? Which is a good thing, right? Which is a good thing and a necessary thing. But the end result then is women and men coming together who've been socialized to be basically fundamentally sexually incompatible. Right. And or if, even if they are sexually compatible, sexually compatible for life, for like four or five decades, um, especially for men, I mean, where we know that novelty is, is integral to sexual arousal for men. Also for women. There are studies in University of Indiana, Kinsey Institute. Men have an easier time becoming aroused with a familiar partner. Women have an easier time becoming aroused with an unfamiliar partner. Is that so really women true? aren't naturally necessarily monogamous. Yeah. Men, in part, because a boner is Tinkerbell. You've got to believe, and there's got to be... <laughs> you know, there's a lot of psychodrama in er erections. It's why some men are, you know, have uh, erectile dysfunction that's only in their head. They just, like, they've lost the belief in Tinkerbell. Nobody's clapping. And if you're with somebody who's been there whenever Tinkerbell arrived reliably, then one boner loss isn't shattering. Right. But if you're with somebody who's brand new, then suddenly your ability to produce Tinkerbell can feel very fraught. So women, mm. men often have an easier time getting aroused with an unfamiliar partner. This is new to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll be perfectly frank. Uh, <laughs> um, when, you, when you... Do you think that... I mean, part of this, I think, in our sexual ethics and the ethic and the socialization of women were based fundamentally on the fear of pregnancy, right? I mean, this was a huge... For men, much less of a problem than for women. Fear of pregnancy? Before the pill. I'm talking about before right. the pill. I'm to, I'm, the, the longer I live, the more I think that that moment, the moment when uh, sex became divorced from procreation, was really the beginning of the homosexualization of heterosexuality. I think so too, because Wasn't suddenly recreation. Wasn't the Catholic Church right to, to note, note that? I mean, in some ways, aren't they, in, if not in their 
prescription and their diagnosis, they're correct, right? That was a huge event in human history. No, it just allowed for opposite-sex couples to have recreational vaginal intercourse, right. um, which they hadn't been able to do. Heterosexual couples had always had oral sex and anal sex and frottage and rolling around and uh, jacking off together, but suddenly they were able to jack off with a vagina. Um, and that was a, a new and different thing. It was... It, Pure love. I know, right? Um, <laughs> sorry. Jacking off, just jacking so off romantic. in your vagina. You know, you had the Catholic Church for 2,000 years telling people that any sex act that wasn't open to procreation was sodomy. You wrote that brilliant piece I quoted yeah. in the book, that we are all sodomites now uh, because of the pill, because of the sexual revolution. But to, a man and a woman could be sodomites if they had oral sex, if they had anal oh, sex, yeah. if they had sex that wasn't open to procreation. That was sodomy. Um, and I forgot what we were talking about. No, we, 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 Marijuana's we, legal in Washington State now. <laughs> Just saying. And I just got off the plane. Um, you famously were challenged by uh, Brian Brown of National Organization for Heterosexual Supremacy uh, <laughs> to a public debate on, I think, what, the issue of marriage or of homosexuality or, or... The Bible. The Bible because I went to a high school journalism conference and in front of 3,000 high school journalists, juniors and seniors, after being told not to pull any punches and to treat them like adults, said that there was bullshit in the Bible. And bullshit defined, Webster's, untrue words or ideas. The Bible says there's unicorns. There's bullshit in the Bible. That's just one example. Um, Is that Revelations? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. I'd have to Google it. And... I, I said this, and out of the audience of 3,000, 22 kids walked out, which then Fox News turned into this mass walkout, and somehow, I think Daily Caller said I was at a Christian high school, which is totally not true. Um, and I just said, described the walkout as pansy-assed, like, you could sit and listen. That was so pansy-assed move. were on your case. And I was trying to be ironic by using an anti-gay. Anyway, it was the wrong thing to do, and I apologize for pansy-assed, but not for bullshit in the Bible. Mark Twain has this great quote where he says, you know, the Bible is uh, a wealth, you know, some interesting history, many fables, some good morals, and upwards of a thousand lies, which is eight, 19th century Mark Twain for bullshit in the Bible. And Brian Brown challenged me to a public debate, said anytime, anywhere, and what he wanted from me was to fill an auditorium with gay people and queers and have him come in like Daniel in the lion's den and everyone booing and hissing because their argument now is they're the victims. They're the victims of intolerance because we no longer are willing to tolerate second-class citizenship, so they're the victims. Um, and what he wanted was to release this video of him being booed and screamed at and then go, look, look, it, I'm the victim. And I'm not, I'm stupid. I'm not that stupid. So my response to Brian was, you said anytime, anywhere, my house after dinner, uh, to deny him the optics that he wanted thinking, I, I made this challenge thinking he wouldn't accept. So it didn't occur to me to ask Terry if that was okay. <laughs> uh, so I got to, how often do you get to go home and say, literally, guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> when he accepted and he came and it was very stressful. I suddenly felt sort of the weight of the world on my shoulders at that moment. I was gonna have to really, I overprepared, I had notes in front of me and it was kind of a nightmare. Uh, I called the chapter in the book about it bigot Christmas because we were, you know, the New York Times came and there's a camera crew coming and we cleaned the house like it was December right, 20th. 
scrubbed everything, dusted the baseboards, and we're cleaning the house and preparing meals, the meal plan and getting wine, and like, this is Christmas, but it's not fucking Santa who's coming. It's big Christmas, right. Uh, the funny and, and it kind of went awry, right? He kind of got what he wanted in the end. He didn't get what he wanted, because what he wanted was videotape of him, you know, getting booed and screamed at, and we're the real assholes uh, and the intolerant ones. Uh, but it, the, we debated for an hour, and then we turned the cameras off, and Mark Oppenheimer from the New York Times, uh, who's a terrific writer and terrific person, had agreed to come and moderate the debate, and he was into it. So we just kept talking for another hour after the cameras were off, and Terry was not into the thing at all and wanted it over and was listening to the things Brian was saying. And we were talking about gay adoption, and we were talking about marriage and gay people <laughs> and gays and gays, because it's really all Brian Brown thinks about, unlike me who can think about other stuff. <laughs> and at this one point, Terry walks into the dining room, just like so done, and he looks at Brian and points at him and says, just, I want uh, one question. Do you think our son should be taken away from us, taken out of our home, our 15-year-old son? And Brian Brown didn't even look at Terry. He was very weird to Terry. Didn't even look at him and said, now why would you ask me a question when you know you won't like the answer? And Terry looked at him and said, you get the fuck out of my house. Which, which, I, which was the, what Brian Brown wanted, and he didn't get it on video, but I've given it to him in the book, because I unpack it in the book. And a whole bunch of people who've read the book have already said, Terry won the debate. <laughs> he wasn't even in the debate. Terry won the debate with that. So, which is rare, right? Yeah. No, actually. <laughs> Terry wins almost every debate that he's in with me. Let me, let me talk about this, this, this tension in most gay men's life, especially those of us who are in any sort of public position, um, especially those of us who are married. Uh, I mean, there is this, and you, 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 you've talked about this at great length, there is this desire to somehow gussy us up as the perfect minority. Like, not only are we married, we are perfect in our marriages, and we bake cookies for each other, and and we have white picket fences and all the rest of it. In fact, there is an extraordinary attempt to, to sort of, in getting that marriage, to say that as a price of getting that marriage, we will therefore be the ideal husband, as it were, to quote a homosexual. Uh, <laughs> and yet, gay people are that, I think, it's true to say, but they're also crazy, wild, and occasionally uh, reckless nuts. Uh, nuts. And uh, I mean, the good thing about you and I is we don't have internalized homophobia. It's all externalized with us. And it, uh, <laughs> That's a, what Andrew means there is like for years, we would write things that were critical about gay culture, critical about some gay shit. And a lot of people, when if you're a gay writer and you have any, if you have any straight readers at all and you give away secrets by then write, turning to write about some gay shit that you think is wrong or fucked up, People come at you with, you, you can't air our dirty laundry in front of the breeders. It's bad for us politically. And you will then be accused of having internalized homophobia. But what you were doing was criticizing other queers, not yourself. Like, no, 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 my so homophobia is, it's about you. You're a fuck up. I'm all right. If there's nothing wrong with the black party, why can't I write about it? Right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the other part of it. I mean, Being a big Bacchanal in New York, which is where you met... Where, is it, where I met my husband at 4 a.m., where all true love begins. <laughs> uh, 
That's one of the straddles that gay people are able to make that straight people often aren't, is that, you know, I met, sometimes when I go talk at colleges, uh, some gay teenager, young gay college student who obviously hasn't read either of the books I've written about Terry and I and our relationship will make a pretty speech about how he wants what I have. He knows my bare biography. Family, you know, marriage, commitment, children, dog. And then he'll say, you know, I want what you have. Uh, how did you get it? I, and then he'll add, I don't approve of the bar scene. I don't hook up. I don't drink or use drugs. And then I'll say, well, I was in a bar and I was drunk and I met this guy who was really high and we hooked up. <laughs> so you might want to rethink that strategy. <laughs> that you will, you will be surprised. I, I wrote a series of columns about this years ago when Ann Landers was still alive. Um, where she was doing how you met stories, and it was all these meet cute stories in the USO and wholesome, wholesome, wholesome. And so many people I know met sleazy. <laughs> and so I invited my readers to send in how we met stories that they would never tell or share with their families or at their weddings and got some really great ones. Which was, which was sleazier, the gay ones or the straight ones? The gay ones. You know, there's, there's, a, there's something about men and male culture and the way men can be and the way men are. OCD, like everything's to the nth degree, right? That is, and, and there are some gay men who are, uh, you know, a, a little, sex becomes their defining care, their hobby, what they do for fun, what they do for intimacy, but then also what they do kind of as sport and performance. Um, Sports sex. Yeah. And that can be rewarding and it can also be exhausting and it's not for everyone, but those guys are out there and sometimes those guys find each other and get married and it's a beautiful thing. But there are and always will be young gay boys and girls who partly because of their sense of difference will want to be even more the same. In other words, gay conservatism, if you want to call it that way, social conservatism, is actually a very strong strain mm -hmm. in the gay community uh, and yet it is always being attacked as if it is... Uh, of course, it takes time for that person to grow up and to realize life is not as simple. The idealist... Right. version of marriage, which a young gay kid will have. Which is often a desperate attempt to win the approval yeah. of a homophobic... I was there. I was, when I was 17 years old and 16 and thinking I was going to come out, I thought, I'm going to be gay, but I'm going to be different gay. I'm going to be the kind of gay person that straight people like. I'm not going to have anal sex. That was my big concession. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not going to do drag. I'm not going to have anal sex. I'm not going to wear leather in public or anywhere. I'm not gonna, and I have like had anal sex, worn leather in public, done drag. Um, but I thought, I thought that that was the price that I would have to pay to convince my parents, Anita Bryant, Jerry Falwell, that we all weren't like that. But then once I came out and I relaxed a little bit, I realized that, you know, you could do these things, you could jump in and out of these things and enjoy them and be able to sort of mine, like, the worst of gay culture, the, which can be the best, in moderation. Yeah. Everything in moderation, including moderation. That every once in a while you need a weekend that's in fucking moderate uh, <laughs> to, to balance and kind of right yourself uh, and shock yourself. And I think that that's something that a lot of young queers who, when they're polled, often say that they're going to be monogamous, they're going to be this, they're going to be that, they want a more conservative sort of family life. And then you check back in with them 10 years later and their worldview has been adjusted by the reality of male sexuality when we're talking about gay boys and also about 
the realization that they can have these things in small doses, have it in a controlled way, and be in charge of it, and it can actually improve their life, because they can meet their husband at 4 a.m. at the black party on the dance floor. Yes, and, and live happily till, as he put it, till my death do us part. <laughs> uh, he's 12 years younger than me. Um, uh, Terry says, I'm going to die first because he's going to kill me. <laughs> um, uh, what, what, um, what, what strategies do you have to persuade people? You see, I think what, you're, what we're talking about is abstract morality, mm-hmm. these kind of abstract terms of monogamy, of appearance, of, of that great English phrase, keeping up appearances. Uh, Which I embrace, oddly. <laughs> Tell me. Gay people can fuck themselves to death. Female sexuality, wherever you be- in heterosexual land, wherever you believe female sexual reserve comes from, whether it's socialization, whether it's a biological component, whether it's fear, uh, rational fear of violence, um, it exists. I think it's the combo platter of all three of those things, but it exists. Um, it is hard for a straight guy to get laid. A lot of the excesses of you know, gay culture, gay male culture, it's not about the fact that we're gay men that so many gay people are like, it's the fact that we're men. Straight guys, if I said there's a part of Central Park where you can go and there are women there, some of them are really hot, some of them are college age, who want to fuck you in the dark and they don't want to know your name, they don't want your phone number, they don't want to ever see you again, straight men would go there. A a whorehouse is a bathhouse staffed by volunteers, right? Or a bathhouse is a whorehouse staffed by volunteers. And there's no parallel in straight land. No. And so the trick for There's gay men and what HIV educators never do, the trick for gay men, which HIV educators never do, is we have to internally find that check on our ability to spin out of control sexually that straight men have imposed on them externally. Right. And if we don't find that, we can fuck ourselves to death. But that's the difference between abstract morality and real morality. Real morality is morality you choose for yourself. You don't simply accept it as imposed upon you reluctantly. Mm-hmm. You own it. You own the values that you're... I never fully understood. And again, this is a difference between us and the church. I simply decided they were just wrong, but that didn't really matter because mm-hmm. it was kind of just silly. The, my first experience of orgasm was so overwhelmingly fantastic. The idea that I had this equipment with me 24 hours a day and could do that at any moment... <laughs> As a, as, a, as a kid living in East Grinstead... And maybe uh, next time without a priest. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Another easy joke, right? No, 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 yeah. I mean, no, I... <laughs> like hey, Father, you, that was awesome. Like, like you, I... I <laughs> like you, I was... Uh, I was an altar boy. I went to an all-boys English high school. No one touched me. I was like, what am I, chopped liver? I... I <laughs> And I was an altar boy, and I worked at the rectory and uh, went to a Catholic seminary for boys, and nobody touched me. And I think it's because my father was a cop. <laughs> he carried a gun. How do you explain the, the, the mass rape of children orchestrated by and covered up by the Roman Catholic Church internationally for it, what appears to be decades? It's... It's appalling. Um, I, I don't know if I can explain it, or it's my 
job to explain it. You, I you think understand sexuality. This is a this is a well, I was this is a piece about... of sexual abuse. Uh, it must have some psychological. Uh, sexually damaged people took refuge in the church for centuries, for generations, and became a self-replicating pile of sexually damaged nutbags, enabling one another. Um, and you know, I thought about being a priest for five minutes uh, because I wanted to live in a big house and wear dresses. And, which was part of it. I like the aesthetics of the church. I actually still go to church sometimes just to sort of bask in not some modern Catholic church, which always looks like the Brady House with a cross on the wall, but a, a big, beautiful, sort of traditional cathedral, Catholic, Gothic thing. I feel very sort of at peace there um, and very connected to the generations of my family who all worshipped in buildings like this. Uh, but I went to the seminary thinking, well, I can never come out. So I need, a pla- I need a reason why I'm not married. I need a right. reason, I need a place to hide. And if a church has become nothing but that for years, uh, nothing but people opting in like that who are damaged and in flight, and not just gay people, but sadists, insane sadists, not like BDSM, safe, sane, consensual, this is fun, cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off, sadism is a masochism, but like real sadists, sexual Raping sadists. Raping deaf children. Yes. Um, taking refuge, pedophiles taking refuge, people who felt they could never act. I wanted to be a priest because I felt I can never act on this. There were other people taking refuge in the church with that same impulse, I can never act on this, who had much more dangerous and potentially lethally so dangerous sexual interests than I did. I just wanted to fuck Leif Garrett. (laughs) I'm surprised anybody knows who I'm talking about when I say that. (laughs) That album cover in 1978, Jesus Christ. Which I look at now and think, oh my, I was a pedophile when I was 12. I, I always, I, I never had any interest in anybody. My, I, it was always daddy for me. It was always like big hairy dude, hairy back, big beard, whatever. Um, Here we so part ways. pedophilia was completely alien to me. But it seems to me you can have it both ways. Uh, the, the zaniness, let's say, let, you just come from IML, International Mr. Leather, which for those of you who are unfamiliar <laughs> with this event. Uh, it occurs, it's, it, it's like a huge leather bar in a hotel with lighting like Target, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which for my mind was not incredibly erotic. It, w- it was a little off-putting. Um, for, for 35 years, it was the 35th International Mr. Leather Contest, yeah, which is people, like a beauty pageant for leather guys, which you wrote a piece about that was brilliant, yeah. like the... <laughs> The clash between the hypermasculinity of the whole leather thing and presentation with a beauty pageant where you're walking the runway and... Yeah, waving and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we never go to the contest. What it is is so I've now, always... So now, let me ask you this question. Is, is that one or the other thing? Is it a pathology? Is it actually fucked up gay men who haven't come to terms or are still wrestling with their sense of masculinity and are therefore dressing in masculine drag while behaving like the girliest girls you ever met? <laughs> Not all of them. Terry. M- most of them. <laughs> uh, or uh, is it simply uh, a voluntary expression of fun and adventure and play that, that is, 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 is as innocuous as a Civil War reenactment? In fact, oh. probably... I reject the premise of the question. It's like looking at a, a restaurant full of people and say, are these people eating because they are hungry and they're making healthy choices, or are some people in here eating themselves to death? Yes. 
both can be true okay. at the same time. There are probably people at IML who are deeply damaged. There are probably people walking down every street who are deeply damaged and making, choosing things that they shouldn't be choosing and bringing to life. But what, I, but what I find when I go to IML is not the scary picture, and I write about it and I defend it, and I defend Folsom, which is a BDSM leather fetish event in San Francisco that takes place on the street in public under the sky, which freaks out the Christians, and they talk about it as a gay event when it's almost 50% straight now. Huh? Some Christians. Some Christians, yeah. Batshit right-wing fundamentalist, crazy conservative, nutjob fascist Christians. We have to be careful to qualify Christians yes, so you. as not to offend my mother um, and her memory, because she was not that way. Um, but to defend these things because, you know, there's something I think about the gay experience that lends itself to, to BDSM. There's something about masculinity, there's something about ritualized violence in male culture uh, that in gay male culture can become sexualized. In straight culture, it's homoerotic. In gay culture, it's like, let's fuck, right? Football and, every, and locker rooms and people slapping each other's ass and sexual horseplay, but also the game itself is a kind of hyper-masculinized sexual violence and play that, is, that, that purges something from men. And IML is that with butt sex. Is football, and literally there are football fetishists who come to IML in full football gear oh, yeah. and regalia. And, you know, you think of the archetypes that gay men are attracted to, almost invariably they're kind of homophobic archetypes, the guys we were afraid of and also desired. And then you can realize both of those things at once. It's something like IML or through fetish play, that you can actually be with the cop, the fireman, the truck driver, the sailor, the leather guy, and, and that is not, in any sense... Pathological? Yes. It depends on how it's expressed. Well, maybe Everything in moderation, including moderation. It depends on how you, how you work that into your life and yeah. whether, it, whether it dominates and controls your life in an unhealthy way. There are some guys who that is their whole life. It gives their lives meaning, and it, is, it, it, it gives them pleasure and a sense of place and community. And I, and I meet those guys, and I don't think, oh, you're sick and depraved and nuts that you've built your life around this. I mean, I some don't of them mean sick and depraved in a, really in a, in a huh? I'm not talking about pathology in a condemnatory way. Mm -hmm. I'm talking it purely as an explanatory uh, way. Um, and the question then becomes, are we less damaged today as gay men than we were 20, 50 years ago? Oh, absolutely. I think we are. I do think we are still damaged, and I get in trouble for saying that. Um, long ago I compared, who, like if who, you're dating who, yeah, and you're gay, it's sort of like you're attracted to and going to be with Vietnam vets using the like, cliche unfair stereotype of Vietnam vets is kind of damaged and deranged at a greater rate than the general population. We can't argue as we do that because of the way we're raised, because of homophobia, because of uh, the cultural messages that are sent to us that we drink at greater rates, abuse drugs at greater rates. Some of us abuse sex to abuse ourselves at greater rates. Some of us are uh, members of Go Proud. And we engage in these very self-damaging behaviors and then say, oh, but we're all happy and healthy and well-adjusted. And the trick when you're gay, when you come out, is to work through the damage that might have been done and be on guard for it, and then also to avoid those people who are the walking wounded and will never recover from what they suffered. And they're out there in greater numbers in gay land. They exist in straight land too, but they're out there in greater numbers in gay land. We commit suicide at higher rates because of X. That also means that some of us are just assholes at higher rates because of X, because of the way we're raised, treated, pathologized by the culture. But that with any luck, I mean, for me, part of the impulse to focus on marriage as, as the critical central focus, which you were 
supportive of from the get-go, unlike almost everybody else. Uh, <laughs> It just made so much sense. It makes it for me. He got so much trouble for arguing for marriage 20, 25 years ago when nobody was for it. And it was always gay couples and gay people, individual gay couples coming forward and pressing for marriage. The gay organizations weren't behind it. They were against it. They opposed it. People were furious at that gay couple in Hawaii for, taking, for bringing that lawsuit. And that random lawyer they found who was willing to take it to court. Which yes, because Lambda turned it down. Lambda turned it down. It and took a straight lawyer to bring that first marriage case because the gay organizations refused. Gay people, it, it, it's about who we love. It's about, and to be able to declare who your next of kin is when your family may be hostile to your sexuality and your choice of partner for a gay couple, how important is that? For a lesbian couple, how important is that? To not have a distant cousin sweep in after you've been with somebody for 50 years and shove you out of your house or make medical decisions for someone that they have never met. Only marriage gives you that power and authority uh, and protects you as a couple and a unit and next of kin. And, and it always blew my mind that so many gay people 20 years ago couldn't see it, that it just wasn't obvious to all that this was the central issue of our lives, much more important than, even to my mind, military service or anything. Well, for me, it was about exactly these pathologies. Because where do they start? I think uh, they start very... They start when, you, when you're seven years old and you're a gay kid, you don't know gay, straight, whatever. You do know mom and dad, mm -hmm. generally speaking. You know marriage. You know that's what straight people do when they grow up. And you know, for some reason, you can't. You are beneath that. That's a wound that goes in deep, early. And that is the wound, to my mind, that leads to all the stuff that we've talked about that is not necessarily, can be, but not necessarily what you really want to do and want to be. And it takes work to overcome that. But my view was that if those kids could see in the distance, in the future, something, something to aim for, they'd be less fucked up than we were. Um, and I think that's true. I think that's... <laughs> the existence of openly gay people openly, and openly gay married people and, and families headed by same-sex couples is reaching those kids. Yeah. You know, with the It Gets Better project, uh, with so much sort of ooey-gooey goodwill, up with people, kind of safe, uh, ugh, kind of congealing around it, people can no longer see the act of cultural defiance and the upraised middle finger at the heart of the It Gets Better project. Because the idea was, and is, and it functions this way, we hear from so many LGBT teenagers, was we're going to talk to these kids whether their parents want us to or not. That we're going to reach out to kids in parts of the country that have no LGBT youth support group, or who have families and parents who would never take them to an LGBT youth support group, or would never take them to a, a counselor who would affirm their sexual identity, and we're going to talk to that kid. We're going to put the LGBT youth support group in their pocket, on their phone, that they can access anytime, anywhere. And that was, uh, that was an act of cultural defiance. And we've heard from angry right-wing, I have, Linda Harvey and a couple other people, just furious because their kids saw the Google commercial or their kids watched an It Gets Better video at school and we were contradicting the message they were sending their kid about gay people. Well, some of those kids who are now getting a contradictory message are, are gay kids. Right. And what they're getting is this message in a bottle saying, fuck your parents, they're wrong. And there's yeah. a world out here and maybe your parents can change too like so many other people's parents have when you come out. And I think that does help that kid, not, for the wound not to be as deep. That kid with hateful homophobic parents is still going to be wounded, but maybe we can 
Yes, you can make maybe the they can so see deep. that they have self-respect in the future. What's fascinating, though, to me is that then there's this extra twist in the story where gay people have come out. We've talked about our lives. God knows we talk more about our lives than most people. Discretion is not exactly our <laughs> strong point, uh, like moderation. Uh, and that has, it seems to me, as we said earlier, affected straight couples. Um, I do think that the, the possibility of two women in a civil marriage, dramatic, the fact that that is the same piece of paper at, in, in the states which have it, um, uh, as a straight marriage, essentially, they're right. It does redefine it. But it redefines no. it to make it more itself. It makes it more equal. It actually brings the best out of marriage. It enables heterosexual marriage to be based not on, as I say, abstract morality. Or gender rules. Or, or, yeah, or gender rules, which is what the abstract morality really is, and focuses on these two equal human beings who both have to give and take in the relationship. There's a terrific article in The Atlantic, uh, this, yeah. the next issue of The Atlantic, about marriage and about how, how studies show that a lot of gay marriages and same-sex marriages are a lot like the way straight people, the, the marriages straight people aspire to, more egalitarian, more fair, less sort of poisoned by gender roles or resentments. And I don't think it's because gay marriage redefines marriage. I think it's gay marriage just calls the question, and it, it, it makes brutally apparent to straight people that they're the ones who redefined marriage, not us. This whole argument that we're trying to redefine marriage, nuh-uh. Straight people did, and to their credit, because marriage for centuries, millennia, had been a property transaction where one man took possession of another man's daughter and became his wife, still his property, and it was deeply sexist and shot through with gender roles that were hugely oppressive and it was institutionalized, ritualized violence directed at women, really. And then about a hundred years ago, not that long ago, marriage began to be redefined by straight people. Straight people didn't want to live in that kind of a marriage system anymore. And marriage is now two co-equal people coming together and committing to one another. Everything else is their choice. They can be monogamous or not, have children or not, get married in a church or not, be married for life or not. They can hew to traditional gender roles if that's what they want, or they can upend all of that and everything can be fairsies, or they can have a femdom marriage if that's what they want. And what same-sex marriage Sorry, does is... A it's femdom marriage? Femdom, female okay. domination marriage. I'm just, just in case the wife's in charge. People might not be fully aware of that. <laughs> I thought I was in New York. Um, I believe Anthony Weiner is in a femdom marriage. <laughs> but At least now. But there you have it. And so what, what, dude, the, problem, what the problem with the Pope dude. and the Brian Browns of the world is that they, what they desperately want to do is take marriage back to these gendered norms that were oppressive to women because that's what they pine for, that's what they long for. And our existence in the legal marriage framework puts the cap on it, makes that regression impossible because we prove that straight marriage isn't what the Brian Browns of the world say well, it is Well, it doesn't anymore. make it impossible because you can voluntarily decide that that's the kind of relationship you want. Well, they um, can't make it compulsory for all anymore. No, they, they can't, can't make it the default setting. Exactly. Anymore. And it's, 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 it leads to a, a sort of more libertarian world, in a way, mainly, mainly for women. Um, do you worry that this libertarian redefinition of marriage, which straight people have imposed on us, uh, is... is yeah, no, one, no, the straight people didn't check with the gays before no, you we, redefined we, marriage to such a point that it could include us. Yes. Um, 
It just took us 30 years to notice. <laughs> my, my, my question was always not why we're seeking marriage quality. Why, why did it take us so long to ask for it? And I think there, that, that goes the buried shame that's still there in What's so many What's interesting, though, in like a lot men. of the reporting now, you're seeing people unearth these reports of same-sex couples walking into marriage licenses, license offices in the late 60s and early 70s and being turned away. Um, and that being kind of a, the site of some early zaps, that this was part of the, the initial burst of gay activism. In 1581. And it got buried. It got buried. There's somehow between 1975 and 1990. No, it, it goes back much further than that. You go back to Boston in the late 19th century. You have Boston marriages with two lesbians living together. You can actually go back in that anthology I did on marriage and you find Montaigne in the, in the, in the 16th century hearing of groups of men who were marrying each other in church at mass. Um, and this was quite remarkable, and they were all burned at the stake thereafter. But the idea that, that gay people did not fall in love and want to be together for the rest of their lives, or as Montaigne put it, um, went to bed and had a household together. Um, that it's was always been there, and I think we, we've got to remember that, and that, that this experience is, 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 is not... A 20th century experience alone, and, and the the burial of that pain, the enormous pain uh, that existed for so long, um, is 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 really uh, a, a remarkable burial. And and to disinter it and to open it and look at it again mm -hmm. uh, is a is a sort of traumatic experience. Sometimes it overwhelms me. How do you tell the stories of people who, for centuries, had to hide every aspect of their personal lives at, to 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 avoid death, how do you unearth those stories? They're, they're gone and they're lost. So they have to be inferred. Well, that's what Boswell did. I think that yeah. Jeb Boswell's book, Christianity, Homosexuality, and Social Tolerance, uh, really did, for me at least, it was the first book that really blew my mind. Because what it said is this gay thing that everybody's saying is some evil is actually a phenomenon that's always existed and that people have tried to figure out ways to, to live lives in dignity. And sodomy as a sin is in fact a 12th century invention. It's up there with usury. Um, <laughs> it is, it was invented at the same time. There was some wave of intolerance in that part of Europe in which, in which sodomites and Jews were singled out for obstruction. Anyway. The story from history that appeals to me most is uh, Hadrian and Antinous. That the emperor Hadrian fell in love with this boy uh, who then drowned in the Nile, and he had him declared a god. And the cult of Antinous lasted for three or four hundred years, and there were temples. It's one of the most well-known faces of the ancient world, Antinous, because a very distinct, sort of beautiful look. And there were all these, all these statues of him and busts of him that that, that are that still exist, are still with us. Um, that he so loved this boy, he was like nineteen or twenty when he died. That he ha he made him a god and ordered the ancient world to worship his boyfriend. Um, and there death. is stuff hiding in plain sight. I mean, King James I, the, author, you know, the person who commissioned that great translation of the Bible, is clearly Queen James I. And his, con <laughs> his contemporaries called him Queen James. Yes, they, they, there was no question. They knew, they knew who this guy was, um, just as people accused uh, Lincoln of having a lavender streak, a man who slept with another man in the White House in his own bed, which we are told by every historian completely normal for the time. Uh, make no fuss about this. Uh, now let's hurry on, move on away from this bizarre cover-up and uh, uh, 
And in and 100 you, years, we'll find out that that wasn't a pretzel George Bush choked on in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> no, the... They can, they can keep him, I Pretzel think. truthers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, we are now going to ask and invite people from the audience to ask brief questions of like Mr. Savage. Um, and uh, the microphone is now in the center. It's first come, first served. Again, please be extremely brief, and please make it a question. A uh, quick question for Dan. Uh, last week, you were interviewed in the uh, Time Out magazine, and you referred to Seattle, your home, as a shithole. Yes. Can you elaborate on your sentiment? <laughs> Here's the thing that drives me crazy about Seattle when I moved there, and I kind of accidentally landed in Seattle. I grew up in Chicago, and I'm a big musical theater faggot, and I always thought I was going to live in New York, and theater is what I love. And uh, I met some people who moved to Seattle to start a newspaper, and I was like, oh, I'll go help you, because my boyfriend had a job on the road, and... So I'm just going to go hang out in Seattle and write this column for six months and have fun. And then I kind of got stuck there. And then a few years later, I met Terry. And then we had a baby. And then 20 years went by. And I was like, holy fuck, I'm still in this horrible place. And <laughs> the example that I always use was if you're in the middle of Seattle and you ask someone what they love about Seattle, they will look at you glassy-eyed and say, the mountains are beautiful. <laughs> and I always look at them and say, the mountains aren't in Seattle. The mountains are... 60, 70, 80, 200 miles away. You don't stand on any street corner in Manhattan and say, what do you love about New York? And they go, New Jersey. I can see New Jersey. <laughs> and I say this, and now I, you know, I've succumbed a little bit. I've drunk a little bit of the Kool-Aid because my son made us all take up snowboarding, and now the mountains are beautiful. And we, go, <laughs> we go to the mountains and we snowboard all winter long. Um, but Seattle doesn't have uh, public transportation. Um, we have a thing called Seattle Process, which prevents us from having big city Chicago, New York-style corruption. But what that means is it takes twice as long to do anything. It costs twice as much as than just honest corruption would cost. <laughs> you know, the thing gets built, and then some people go to jail. Uh, and everything takes forever in Seattle. There's no cabs. Um, there aren't neighborhoods. People are weird and cold. Uh, which I like, you know, I'm attracted to Germans. But, <laughs> but there's just something that galls you about living in Seattle because everybody wakes up every day going, this is Paris, France, and it's barely Dubuque, Iowa <laughs> on a good day, and it wants, like, big city cred without paying any big city dues. Around 75% of Seattle is zoned single-family housing. Um, and that's a huge problem in Seattle because uh, property is insanely expensive and everybody bitches about how expensive uh, housing is in Seattle. But if you propose maybe perhaps we should have rezoned some of these neighborhoods to build these things called apartment buildings that more people can fit in uh, and more people will afford to live in, everybody literally shits their pants and falls on the floor and tells you to move to New York. And I'm standing there going, I want to move to New York. <laughs> but Terry won't go, so I can't. Terry loves it. Next question. Thank you for crouching in the dark. There really is no, there's no need. You can all stand up in a row. Black these nice people's view. Okay. Um, oh, okay. That's why. Okay. I'm sure I'm not the only one. This is my first time uh, seeing you in person. I was wondering if you could uh, share a couple workout tips. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um... 
my Terry uh, took, <coughs> took up gym going as a religion, and now the only way I can see Terry is to go to the gym with Terry. So uh, we go to the gym and we eat a lot of protein at our house um, of all sorts. So first, thank you. Uh, there's a very concise thing I heard on NPR the other day. A guy said that uh, morality is empirical. And that phrase has really stuck with me, and I think it really captures a lot of things that you've been talking about. My question, though, uh, is now with the Internet and free access to porn, what do you think about children being able to have access to absolutely everything? You know, it's a brave new... Uh, worrying world of porn, and I say that as the, the parent of a teenager, um, you have to monitor, you have to, to filter, but you, know, you can't stand there screaming against the wind. It just so permeates uh, the internet and uh, that there's no... You can decide porn online is bad for kids and your kid is still going to look at porn online. So I think the challenge is to educate your child to be kind of a critical and thoughtful viewer of porn and to think about what they may be viewing. Um, you know, I wish, in some ways, having a child makes you more conservative. Um, these camera phones, like this idea that every child at this time of life when they have no goddamn judgment is photographing every goddamn idiot thing they're doing and putting that out there in the world... You know, I'm not taking, I'm not making an endorsement in your mayoral race. Like Christine Quinn seems really great. Wiener seems really great. I kind of want Anthony Wiener to win just for all those kids out there who's, who have dirty pictures floating around that will haunt them one day. We've got to get past this, so, you know, a dirty picture getting loose on the internet ruins you forever. Um, just like we've gotten past drug use ruins you forever politically. Remember, Ginsburg couldn't be on the Supreme Court because there's a picture of him smoking pot. And then Clinton in, smoked but didn't inhale. And then George W. Bush and got away with it. <laughs> and then Obama was like, yeah, I smoked pot and I inhaled. That was the point, right? And then he turned into a <laughs> terrible goddamn drug warrior hypocrite when he became president. But you can, it didn't prevent him from being president. And we need that same progression with online idiocy, including... I'm talking kind of about sexting and self-produced pics now. But I don't know. I'm interested in the stuff that Andrew's been writing a lot about at The Dish, about the no-fat movement, about porn. There's all this new research coming out. Because in, in a way, I sort of feel like, well, it didn't hurt me, but I wasn't wallowing in it at 12 and 13 and 14. Although a lot of the, the studies were run back. Somebody ran down that study that panicked parents everywhere that said that your kids are looking at online porn at 12 and got back to the source of that, which was some right-wing Christian nut with a self-published book. And decent, actually, uh, scientifically valid studies have found that kids start looking at porn online at about 14 or 15. So but is that, that poisoning a pre-adolescent's mind? Necessarily? Maybe I could uh, just come in. There is, there is evidence uh, that apparently is not made up um, that 20-something men, when confronted with actual sex, with an actual woman, uh, are flummoxed and befuddled. As I would be. I empathize. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they don't know what to do. Well, they want to reenact pornographic fantasy. Um, and when they can't, or when their partner is unwilling, they can't get hard. Um, there is this you know, FAP movement in, in, in trying to restore uh, erectile function uh, for 20-somethings. Because the mind 
I mean, almost all sex is up here, right? Once you have, once you have satiated to an almost ridiculous degree the most extreme and phenomenally novel ways of having sex, and when you have, in your formative hormonal rush, been completely flooded with that, and then you're presented with uh, you know, a woman who's a regular, normal-looking woman who actually wants intimacy as well as sex, you are, you, you, these things are not working. Um, and I, you talk about talking through this. Is this universally this? true? I mean, I just think some of that gives me pause just because, you know, I, I had access to porn and usually what it, there may be a lot of people out there who've been damaged by it. I, I can't imagine that there aren't, but I don't think that all people who are exposed to it are damaged by it. Um, it it no, was always my feeling about porn that I sought out porn that actually fed into the fantasy life that I already had. I didn't adopt fantasies from porn. Maybe some people are because of its ubiquity and availability and, and the endlessness of it online. But is it, a, is it our next sex panic? We've, been, we've had many sex panics in our culture and then pointed to people who were really sort of outliers uh, in the way that they functioned sexually or the way they were damaged sexually by cultural influences and said these were, this was universally true. Anybody who looks at porn is going to... I wouldn't go that far. Dysfunctional. Uh, but I think there's a panic that they can't have sex. That, that For those individuals. in their brain has short-circuited their ability to function sexually in their bodies. Um, and that may be, and I do think that's a function of the internet and probably of the last 10 years of broadband when you didn't have to look like that way at the TV and on the channel 37 or whatever <laughs> it was. And, or when I was lucky enough to see a shirtless guy in the, the Sunday Times magazine. We, in our generation, we got our porn early in dribs and drabs. I actually drew my own porn because I couldn't get any. Um, I shoplifted. Really? Yeah, kids today. It's like handed them on a platter. We had to go <laughs> fucking steal it. It's like, it's, it's like the lost art of cruising, right? It's, 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 uh, it's all... We learned important life lessons. You life did. lessons running from convenience stores. <laughs> Cardio. Sorry. Um, this, you mentioned earlier this idea that uh, death in our culture defines a successful marriage, that if you die, and even if it was miserable, um, that it was successful. Do you, have you thought about another measure of success, that instead Absolutely. of the words death to his part, there's another saying that, you know, till that's the end. Well, I think, and, and this isn't just about marriage, but any sort of relationship. You know, I often get the question at the, my sex advice column, we're here, who's here we are, this is what we're doing, do you think this will work? Do you think this will be good? And what they mean when they say work is, will we be together for the rest of our lives? And I don't think that's the definition of will it work, will it be good? If you're together for five years, 10 years, 20 years, um, you loved each other, you were good to each other, you learned, you grew, and then you part. Um, I don't think you have to look back at those 20 years as a failure if you were both better, smarter, more loving, more fully realized people, and you came away from that marriage, friends. I think that that was a success. My parents divorced, um, and it was very traumatic when I was 15 years old, my parents divorced. And it was kind of a bolt from the blue. They both went on to second marriages that seemed to make them happier, and after a few years they were able then to come together at family events and be very good to each other. Um, and my father was uh, spectacular at my mother's funeral. Like, it was just as weird as that sounds, because um, he wasn't very spectacular uh, earlier. And so now I look at my parents' marriage and think, do I have to, can I round that up to a success? 
do I have to look at that marriage that I and my siblings are the product of and go, that was a, that was a fuck up and a disaster? I don't think so. I think we should be more generous, kind, and loving. Now that marriage is opt-in, when people opt out, but they both come away better people for, ha for the, m the existence of the marriage, the time in the marriage, and for the opting out, let's call that a success. So many people are walking around with that experience of a marriage having failed. And I think we need to change the way we look at those relationships. But what about the corollary to that, which is that surely to have shared your whole life with another person and to have had a healthy and functioning relationship till death do us part is a good thing, surely. I mean, we're not, just because we're not stigmatizing failure, or we're not calling it that failure. we can't recognize a we, different kind of success. I think we must. I think that, from, uh, certainly for my part, I think it's the part of my vows that I, that, that I feel most strongly about. Because, As do I. Uh, because we're there for each other forever. Hopefully. As long as we live, as, obviously. But it's... We're, we're, you know, we're both... Uh, I feel the same way about Terry. Like, I, I can't imagine any circumstance, anything that he could do that's worse than some of the things he's already done, that would break us up. <laughs> and I'm sure that he would say the same about me um, and things that I've done. But we are whistling past the world's most crowded graveyard at this moment. God yeah. himself couldn't sink this ship, right? But I think that one of the... Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that we're in that place... Uh, God, I hate to say this, is because we're not monogamous. One of the reasons that I, I think that our marriage works and will last, and, and we're not, that's why I invented for me and Terry the term monogamish, which has been adopted by a lot of straight people, it's all over OkCupid, um, <laughs> that we're much more monogamous than not. Um, but there's squish, there's a little I wiggle like to think room. of it as a, it's not an open door, it's a jar. Right. <laughs> um, With condoms in it. <laughs> Just like... Sorry. I'm punchy you, now. He's just doing a one-liner every time I try to make a Sorry. point. It's all right. It's okay. Um, I can be straight, the straight man for an hour and a half. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I must say myself that the, the, the commitment, the open commitment in front of our families and friends that will be there for each other regardless um, is kind of, in some ways it makes all those difficulties in the marriage uh, easier to handle. Because you can say, as I've said it sometimes in our marriage, look, we're stuck with each other for life, so let's work on this, right? Let's work this through. And Why that you? security of knowing that our commitment is that deep means that these crises are not moments to opt out. They are moments to make it work. Now, I understand if that can't always happen and it will eventually fail, and I'm not blaming people who didn't, and I wish my parents had divorced 30 years before they did so that they could have had happier and better lives, but I'm, I'm loath to give up on that ideal, and, uh, and it doesn't have to be. It's not, it's not about but monogamy. Is there a way to credit, it's about fidelity. Is there a way to credit that kind of marital success without stigmatizing marriages that both people survived? Do you know what I mean? That uh, I too want to, you know, if Terry and I make it yes. 50 years and we're still yes. together and one of us drops dead, that will be something of an achievement. Yeah. But can we recognize the achievement of that kind of, the, the success of a marriage that became lifelong 
without looking at somebody who, who was together five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and saying, ha ha, you fucked up, you failed, that's an embarrassment. Well, yeah. we are doing that tonight, aren't we? We're, I hope we're so. both saying that. We're both saying that. That, that, that this abstract morality becoming a remoralization from the ground up based upon actual human experience as opposed to theological certitudes or dogmas, um, that that can be, instead of either or, either you're a failure or a success, it's both and. Mm -hmm. and, the, and that's, I think, partly what the gay movement has helped do with, for straight people, which is to understand that not everything is either gay or straight, but it is gay and straight, which means also then begins to say gay and bi, or gay and trans, or straight and monogamous. One of the things I think that gay people have done for straight people is that, you know, sometimes people would bitch about, oh, the drag queens at the Pride Parade, the leather people at the Pride Parade, the go-go boys at the Pride Parade, why can't we all be in suits and ties at the Pride Parade? And I think something that... That, that I think is Even I never took that oh, line. No, you didn't say that. I but crazy people say that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that gay people, straight people have looked to gay life and gay culture and said, look at all the different ways there are to be gay. Perhaps there are different ways to be straight. We don't all have are. to be straight in the same way. Exactly. And there are. And one of the things I think is really fascinating about sex cultures gay and straight right now is the coming together really in the kink world kind of leading, like I mentioned earlier, the Folsom Street Fair is almost half a big straight party now, is that the kinky straights have more in common with the kinky gays than, say, the gay parents. You know, a, a gay guys who have a couple of kids and live in the suburbs have more in common with their neighbors who have a couple of kids and live in the suburbs than they do with the gay dudes who have the dungeon in the basement of their house or their apartment <laughs> building in, you know, Boys Town in Chicago. And that guy, those, that gay couple with the dungeon in the basement of their house in Chicago have more in common with the straight kinksters who live three doors down who also have a dungeon in their basement. And there's this kind of coming together of those, those worlds. There is basically less of a distinction between gay and straight and more of an obvious distinction people with kids and those people who don't have kids, <laughs> right? Um, and presumably you're also, I mean, as a father, I, I'm, I will, I'm sorry to... to uh, <laughs> There is a point, surely, about not, not, have, not going to Folsom when you have an eight-year-old kid and no. taking them along. I mean, oh, there, God, no. There, there is, there, it's important that uh, parents with children shield those children from But from it's important things. for parents with children to be able to say, if my kid wasn't eight, I'd go to Folsom. Yeah. Like, I think one of the things that drives me crazy about some gay people when they become parents is then they turn around and say, oh, the person I was before, they're going to Folsom or going to parties or going to the parade or doing this. All that was so meaningless. Now I have a child. Now I see what life is really about. It's not mutually exclusive, those right. experiences. I think Again, as, as a gay end. parent, some of the things that DJ did to us was impose logistical, put logistical blocks in our way. There are things we couldn't do you know, when he was younger, couldn't do um, at certain times that we wanted to because he, his needs came first, including his emotional needs, his need for feeling safe and, and protected and the priority in our lives. And that, you know, that put limitations on us that we embraced when we became parents. Uh, so no, we didn't take DJ to Folsom <laughs> when he was eight. Uh, the only people I've ever seen at Folsom with children are straight people. Yes. 
Yes, next. Hi. Because straight Hi. people are crazy. Speaking of parenting and sex culture and all that stuff, I, I work at Gay Men's Health Crisis. Um, this is my 20th year. Oh, thank you. Hey. Hey. Thank you. So I'm, I would like to know your thoughts about safer sex, prevention work, particularly with kids, uh, older folks, gay, straight. Um, you know, our, our kids are under siege uh, right now, our LGBT kids. Uh, you know, our senior folks, you know, we don't talk about sex if yeah. you're over, whatever. Um, and so a lot of AIDS service organizations, including GMHC, are always moving forward to try to find the ways to support folks around safer sex, relationships, intimacy. I have and, a lot. Uh, yes, please. I have some real beefs with HIV prevention education. Okay. Um, I often feel, and I've done a lot of writing about it, and I helped found an AIDS prevention organization in Seattle, and I've often felt that they were more in the business of sort of up cheering for gay sex as opposed to acquainting gay men with the risks of gay sex, that there was a desire not to stigmatize anal intercourse, that a lot of the discourse in HIV prevention land about how shame and guilt don't work is wrong. I say this as a Catholic, shame and guilt work like gangbusters. And I was, I was there and out in 84 when everybody rapidly changed their behavior because people were scared. And it, it worked. And, you know, when it comes to HIV, HIV infection rates among young gay men, which are a real problem, there was a high school in Minnesota. Chlamydia roared through this high school in Minnesota. Every news story was, what are parents, preachers, and teachers going to do about this problem with these, with these kids, our kids in Minnesota, in this high school, in this community? When we write about or talk about the HIV infection rate among young gay men, the response is, what's the gay community going to do about this? There's this sudden desire to take these children, almost all of whom have heterosexual parents, and hand them to us and make them our responsibility. No, the question is, what are parents, preachers, teachers, right. families, communities going to do for these children? Right. And I have a real problem with this idea that, that sort of the, the premise that underlies a lot of HIV prevention education. Here come the gay kids along this assembly line where a lot of them are being damaged in the ways that we spoke of earlier. And then we have HIV prevention organizations standing there with posters about safe sex at the end of this assembly line as if that can undo the damage done all along that route. And it cannot. No. And the existence, and I think GMHC does great work. I'm for HIV prevention education. I think we need it. But we also need a jacuse. We need a finger pointing at the families and the culture that is, that is all along that assembly line. And then when you have kids who are getting chlamydia who are straight, everyone's blaming or, or, or calling to account the, the people all along the assembly line. But when it's mm -hmm. gay kids, they're suddenly, oh, what's the gay community do? You know what? I can't do anything for your 16-year-old gay son except not fuck him. And I won't, when it, we're talking about sex and prevention and education. Right. You have to parent your gay child. That's right. And they need sex education, they need affirming sex education, and they need HIV prevention organizations to tell them the truth. You can have too much sex. That sucking a million dicks is not the best gay guy in the world. That we need, as we said earlier, that internal check. I've never seen HIV prevention education materials that said to gay men, you can fuck too much that it is possible to fuck too much. I'm in this position where I'm always telling straight people to have more sex and more sex partners than they do, but we need to tell gay men to have less sex and fewer sex partners than they can. And there's a balance to be struck where people can have varied and interesting and rewarding and fulfilling sex lives and be 
safe and get the numbers down. But the culture of condoms has kind of collapsed and failed. Which worries me, because I was there, as Andrew was. We were, you know, we were there for the worst of it. I came, I'm 48 years old. I was 17 in 1980 when I started to came out. Walked right into the buzzsaw. And even if there's a vaccine, now we know that the emergence of a hitheretofore unknown, fatal sexually transmitted infection is a consequence, a potential consequence, of an out-of-control sex culture. And we never say that. We talk about a vaccine or a cure as if then we can somehow return to what Michael Callan in Surviving AIDS wrote was, describes as not, not, a, not a sustainable sex culture, I think is what Michael Callan said in, in his terrific book, which is underread now. Um, and what Randy Schultz said Yeah, too. Randy right. Schultz. But we're not, are we, at... 1979 in San Francisco anymore, are we? I mean, that, that's that kind of... And HIV we, is not what it was in 1984, Absolutely, either. and that impacts how people make their sexual choices, and I think that's rational. Uh, we need treatment... You know, one of the problems is... Uh, something See, that drives me crazy, crazy to feel like a fascist. Treatment as prevention. We know that people who are on drugs are functionally non-infectious if they have a, a, a low viral load right, or no undetectable viral load. And so treatment actually can bring down the HIV infection rate. Well, people can't be treated if they haven't been tested, but we have a lot of laws and a lot of prevention agencies that believe perhaps testing should be mandatory now, now that we know that treatment saves not just the lives of the people who are HIV positive, but the lives of potentially their sex partners as well. Why not universal testing and treatment? We why not have universal treatment without testing? Because people can't be in treatment if they don't know they're positive. They, if you take mivarapine or you take one of those antiretrovirals, um, there are data showing that you're much less likely to be infected. Um, I think if, you, if, if everybody was on those drugs, then the rates of infection would decline. Can everyone be on, H, on HIV Nivaris, drugs? Well, if, if, if everybody, if they can do it for almost free large swaths of Africa, I don't see why gay men cannot cannot have that. The, the, the resistance of that is, oh my God, we'll give them these pills, they'll think they're immune, they'll all go out and have sex and somehow that's a horrible thing. Right. No, we just want to stop this disease. Right. And you can't scare people anymore because it's no. not scary. scary. Right. And trust me, it was terrifying. Yes, Beyond was. anybody's imagination, it was terrifying. Uh, um, but and, say but we do, it's but 20 say years we do this that, year. Say my, and I'm just so Catholic and weird, but say we do that, then, you know, people are in treatment, so they're not going to use condoms, and along comes the next thing flying under the radar of, I'm protected from HIV, I can be doing whatever I want, I can but take fewer precautions. You're real, you're real about this. Sex with a condom is infinitely inferior to sex without a condom. Yes. Right? Yeah. So when you're talking about those sexual snap choices, uh, which obviously take place at a moment when you are least susceptible to rational judgment. And talk about screaming into the wind, as you said earlier. Right. Um, I'm just trying to be practical here with you and, and, and think, well, how do we actually stop this? Right. How do we realistically target this? Uh, and I, you know, I'm open to that idea of pr pr proactive pre pr preventive care. Uh, because epidemiology, as you know, a slight tick in prevalence could lead to quite significant downticks. And it's, it's, uh, it's I, the one thing I don't like is people that say, how, how insane are these people? 
to do this after everything that's happened. And you realize, well, simpler. it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen people, anymore. I always say to these people, syphilis, 500 years of syphilis, straight people didn't stop having sex and die yeah. out. It's true. <laughs> people were dropping dead all over Europe for 500 years from syphilis, and nobody said, God, straight people are still fucking unbelievable. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Next, please. Hi. Um, Dan, first of all, I want to say that I'm, I know Catholic guilt takes the cake, but Jewish guilt could really run for its money. Um, I can touch Jewish that. guilt is the mother of Catholic guilt. And, and my mother, okay, I won't, she's not here, so I can say whatever I want. But, uh, Andrew, as much as I agree with you and what I've read on, on uh, your opinions on hate crime legislation, and I didn't before and now I do, I'm kind of curious as to what you think should or can be done that hasn't been done given the rise of attacks just in the past month in this city. Because my friends and I, having grown up in the city and, and gone to school in the West Village and thinking I was really lucky that I didn't have to worry and this was so cool, we're like really scared. <laughs> and in a way, I mean, I don't know, it's just the only solution we've come up with is pepper spray and we don't really know what to do. And I mean, just in terms of like, an idea in terms of like, if, if not hate crime legislation, or more hate crime legislation, because I agree with you on why then, it doesn't make then sense. Then crime legislation and enforcement of the law, which means punishing the miscreants, as I think in this particular case it actually was, did occur. Um, I believe in, in working with police forces to make sure that anti-gay violence is, is stopped and that we have the community works with them to identify people who are doing this and that we, we, we stop it uh, and not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's what they want. Um, and engage in the laws that are already on the books. There is a law, there is a law against hitting someone over the head. Um, and I think also, to some extent... But I, think, I, 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 I have to disagree okay, here, because okay, I think... I mean, I, the only, people don't argue for hate crimes legislation well. And the point that is never made is that there isn't just one victim of a hate crime. You have been victimized by these hate crimes. You are now fearful. Your friends are fearful. That, someone who targets somebody because of their race, their sexuality, their faith for a crime is intending also to terrorize everyone who shares that faith, sexuality, um, uh, race. And that, above and, that is an additional crime. So it's not like it's extra illegal to punch a fag. It's, it's, it's but in that additional crime, the victim has a choice. Choice not to be afraid. Uh, the choice to reject that kind of label. The additional which is, victims. Not James Collins doesn't no, exactly no. have a choice to not no, be afraid. No, the person who was... No, I'm saying the additional... The right. second okay. wave, the other victims who are affected by the fear that this creates can say to themselves, unlike the person who was actually shot and killed, um, I'm not going to let this affect me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not allow fear to dictate my life. Um, but I thought about it. I mean, I just got to New York and I was walking down the street and I went, oh, yeah the spike in hate crimes in New York. And here I am in a place where I've always felt very safe being as gay as I want to be, and this, this Paul. And what do you do? I think you get pepper spray. I think you do, you take whatever steps that makes you feel safer. But I actually think there is a place for, for hate crimes legislation and additional penalties for hate crimes. We take intent into account when it comes to murder charges, and I think we can take intent into account when it comes to targeting somebody for violence because you hate the group that they represent. You, know, you burn a cross on the lawn of a black family, you didn't just harm that family. You harmed all the black families in that community and terrorized all of them. And I think adding some years to the sentence for the person for burning that cross is completely justified in that case. We agree, disagree. 
Yes. Last, last question. Hi. Um, thank you for this thoughtful conversation about sexuality. That's not smut or sanctimony. But um, I want to go back to something you said very early on in the talk when you said something about how at times adultery is preferable to divorce. And in this country, contrary to maybe more family-oriented societies, divorce is actually taken with great tolerance and adultery is seen as a symptom of a troubled relationship. So I want to hear you about the, the symptom view. And because um, you've talked monogamy and you've talked about successful marriage, can we add infidelity? Can we talk about infidelity? Uh, I'm for it. <laughs> Andrew? I'm not for infidelity. No, I, I don't think that people should violate commitments that they've made. I don't think that, I, I don't take that lightly. I also don't think people should be encouraged or bullied by the culture to make commitments they cannot keep. And I don't think that people should, attract, should extract commitments under duress from someone that they're in love with that they know that person is unlikely or unable to keep. You're just setting your marriage up or relationship up for failure. Um, there's a great uh, writer, and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but she's, she's also in the book, uh, who says that every monogamous relationship is a disaster waiting to happen. That in the, in the almost, it's almost um, unavoidable. 60% of men in long-term relationships, 40% of women in long-term relationships. That, that those 60% of the men and 40% of the women, they're not all married to each other. So infidelity is likely to touch every long-term relationship at some point over the years. And we, I, I, you know, I don't think serial adulterers get a pass. I don't think that a betrayal shouldn't be regarded as a betrayal. But we need to encourage people to regard these things as routine, likely to happen, likely to hurt, likely to suck, but something that you can work through and get past. Because it is better to be the Clintons than the Sanfords, isn't it? In the long run, does anyone look at Bill and Hillary Clinton and think that is an unsuccessful marriage at this point? No. And so to encourage people to be rational about, about infidelity, that it may happen, it may happen at a point in your marriage where sex is less defining and less important in your relationship than it is right now at the outset, um, and encouraging them to not be blasé about it and not be uh, whatever. Just to, people just shouldn't be irrational about it. People should be rational about their relationships. And if we can diffuse this time bomb, you know, we built... When we made monogamy one of the defining characteristics of marriage, we undermined marriage in a, in a, in a, in, in a batshit way because people aren't good at it. We aren't naturally monogamous animals. Why is your penis shaped like that? Um, Jesse Baring wrote this terrific book, Why is my penis shaped like that? The human penis is a plunger that is designed to suck the semen out uh, of the vaginal canal of the other males that the woman has mated with that day. We evolved as naturally a non-monogamous species. <laughs> and we all walk around today in our relationships. <laughs> we all walk around in our relationships, you know, waiting for, the, waiting for that disaster to happen and then surprised when it does happen. Um, I don't think we have to be delighted when it happens, but we should be not surprised. How do you... And we should conceptual... You, how do you work through it? How do you get yeah, past I, it? I think that what it comes down to is that that sounds great, and, and I will wrap this up, but just how do you start that conversation? You've just gotten married. We had that... <laughs> Three years in, it's like, what do you say? We Who's had... Terry and I had that conversation. The first four or five years we were together, we were strictly monogamous because that's what Terry wanted, and I I'm wanted Terry. i a man and a woman here. Which well, is a I, different I think dynamic. This is a, uh, uh, well, I don't know. 
three years into it, we started to think about adoption, and I was like, what happens if I cheat on you or you cheat on me? And he's like, well, I will never cheat on you, but if you cheat on me, I'm leaving you. And I said, then I'm not having a baby with you because that's not fair to that child because the odds that one or the other or both of us will cheat at some point are about 100%. So <laughs> I will adopt with you. We, will, we can start a family, but I'm not going to start a family with you if that sort of Damocles is hanging over our child's head all his life. So we didn't have to say up with adultery, but we did have to say to each other, if and when it happens, it will not, we promise. That was one of the commitments that we made. That's it should the, be written into the vows. If and when this happens, if this should happen or when it happens, our marriage and everything else we mean to each other is, means more than that blowjob that you got on that business trip, male or female, straight or gay. And if we could say that out loud, if we could have that conversation in advance, even during the romantic stage, we were still in the romantic stage of three years, very romantic, still we're very romantic, but super romantic, super like into each other, having and starting a family. And we had, I wanted, what I wanted was us to look at each other and say, if this happens, it's not the end. And maybe if it happens, it would have been the end anyway. But if you've looked at each other and said, if this happens, as it's happened to so many other couples, for us, it won't be the end. It's less likely to be the end when it does happen, if it happens. On that hopeful note, we Andrew will Sullivan, end Dan Savage. Thank you. And thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.